Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this first full episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill, and just to explain what this podcast is about, it's essentially an attempt by me to bring to the attention of the listener the journals that my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, wrote right back in the 1840s. I should just explain that these journals have never been published or printed in any form before, so so this is the first time that anyone outside of my family has had the opportunity to discover what's revealed in them. So the journals basically cover my great-great-granddad's journey across Europe to work as an engineer on a very early steam railway in Italy near Milan, and then his subsequent journeys across the world, taking a paddle steamer across the Atlantic, finally ending up in Mexico, where he travels to the centre of Mexico to a town called Zacatecas, or city, where he's employed as an engineer in the mint or coin-making industry. So that's essentially why it's called a grand tour, because of his grand journey. So how does the podcast work? Well, basically, the podcast consists of me reading a bit from great-granddad Bill's journals, and then uh, occasionally I stop to explain to modern listeners a little bit about the references that uh, William makes to the places he's visiting, or people that he mentions, or the history that he also discusses, and also sometimes the sights and sounds that he um, relates to the reader and also some of the opinions that he expresses as well which at times can seem quite strange to a modern reader. If you want to know more about the origin of the journals, their history, um, their links to my family and how they've been um, sort of preserved and prepared by me for these podcasts then um, the best thing to do is listen to the first introduction episode where I go into quite a lot of detail explaining all that sort of backstory and back history to them. Originally that was going to be part of the first podcast but um, (laughs) it became so long that I decided it might be better actually to have it as its own separate podcast and I think you could probably listen to this podcast and not necessarily know the background to the journals but I would recommend you listen to it because it does explain it in more clarity and in more depth and more time than I'm doing here and I think really essentially also explains my motivation for doing these podcasts as well. Essentially I'd say I would listen to that bit first before you get onto the 
as they say, the meat of the journals and the journeys of my great-great-granddad. So in that introduction, I go into a little bit of detail about what the first episode is about. Just to explain, William makes these initial journeys because he's an engineer, and his first journey out to Italy is basically because he's employed as a engineer and train driver on this very early steam railway in Italy. Now, I should add here a little bit about how he undertakes this journey. He doesn't explain how he gets this job, so I don't know how that came about, and I don't know any backstory about his professional life, um, you know, how he trained or was educated as an engineer. He doesn't make any reference to that. I do know some backstory because he gives a little bit of genealogy. I do know that he uh, was born in 1801 in Berwick-upon-Tweed and then he sort of lives in other places, Norfolk and York and uh, in London, um, before he sets off on this journey. And at this time, he's about 39 years of age by 1840. I should explain, he's travelling out on his own, not with his family. His family come and join him a few months later once he gets to Milan. And I should also point out that um, this is actually his second marriage, because this is mentioned in the genealogy. Uh, very sadly, his first wife, Matilda, dies, and his two young children from his first marriage die as well. So I'm afraid he doesn't really explain what it is but I can imagine it's mainly some sort of illness. You have to remember, at this time, the average life expectancy of a man in 1840 was actually about 41 years of age. You know, we didn't have antibiotics, we didn't have all the medical treatments we have now. People's life was just generally much more susceptible to things like diseases and even injuries. If injuries happened, people's ability to recover from them was much less than it is now. So I don't know how his first wife and children died, but reading between the lines in the journals, when he does very briefly touch on that subject, I can only assume that it was probably through disease. So William is starting this journey, living in London, and he's travelling down on his Todd by stagecoach, because there aren't many railways at this time they are literally all being built not only in in europe but still in the uk there aren't that many so he travels down by stagecoach from london to dover and he's traveling out on his own and at the same time the railway locomotives the actual engines are also being exported to this railway in milan as well from the uk in italy they've built the railway but they don't have at that time the engineering expertise to actually build the locomotives so they are being exported from companies in the UK that have made them out into Italy. I think it's slightly ironic that uh, like many things Britain pioneered in engineering um, we often invented things a long long time ago but we lack the ability to really make them a success technically or reliable. I just think it's quite ironic in a way that, um, I'll, I'll work it out in a minute. How many ever years later? 182. We now have Italian trains that have been exported and built in Italy 
running on British train tracks because we don't have the expertise <laughs> to build <laughs> trains in the UK anymore. So there we are. It's all swings and roundabouts. It's all a circular thing, isn't it? What goes around comes around. Anyway, just to begin this journal, so William, he's about to leave London, travel down through Kent, and then he gets on a paddle steamer at that time, and he travels from Dover to Boulogne, where this first podcast will finish, and then he begins the rest of his journey from Boulogne down through northern France to Paris. And then he spends quite a bit of time in Paris um, before then going on his journey again down to Italy. So he obviously had sort of planned in his journey down to spend some time in Paris, seeing the sights, seeing the sounds. And as we progress to later podcasts in the series, quite a lot of these episodes are taken up with his time in Paris. So that's it really. As I say, I've explained quite a lot in the introduction about these these things, so I'd say it probably is a good idea to listen to that first before you get into the main journey with William and his journals. And, and uh, as I briefly mentioned, I'll read an extract of William's journal and then I'll stop from time to time. I do say quite often, let me briefly stop here. Sometimes those brief stoppages actually end up being pretty long explanations. Unfortunately, it's the kind of nature of the thing. As you do more research, obviously, you find more things to talk about. So if at some point you hear me say the word, I'm just going to briefly explain here. You go, no, it's not. It's not going to be brief. It's going to be a long one. But anyway, sometimes it is brief. Sometimes it isn't. But I hope you enjoy it anyway. I mean, that's the whole point of doing the podcast. And as I say, I think it's pretty remarkable that these accounts have survived this long in the way that they have. It's really through luck, serendipity, and certainly no real forethought amongst my family that they have survived. And so I do have a quite a sense of ownership about them, but also quite a sense of I really want people to know about them and hear them because I think they are a remarkable account. And, you know, William isn't the best writer at times he claims not to be you know the best writer he he never says these are written for publication or anything like that they are written for his family but i still think they are a remarkable document and they give a remarkable insight into a time that is a long long time ago now particularly some of the just the sights and sounds and attitudes of a world that is so distant from us now it it could almost be on another planet. So I do have a real sense of wanting to share these with other people. So I do hope you enjoy them. And I do hope you enjoy listening to the podcast. Anyway, it's time we get on with it, really. So um, here we go. This is the first bit of William discussing his journey through Kent to France. It was early in the spring of the year 1840 that I was engaged for the purpose of proceeding to Milan, 
the capital of the Lombardy Venetian Kingdom, to superintend the locomotive department of the railroad, then commencing, and at a short distance at that time, completed between the former place, that's Milan, and Venice, in pursuance of which I departed from London in the evening of the 24th of March by mail coach to Dover. Soon after passing Blackheath, the snow commenced falling very rapidly, the cold at the same time being very intense. On arriving at Dartford, 17 miles from town, I descended from the coach for the purpose of warming and refreshing the inward man by a copious libation of brandy, sugar and hot water, a mixture, by the way, of which, in cold weather especially, I am particularly partial to. On entering the inn, I was greeted by a smiling landlady, a blazing coal fire and a pretty barmaid the latter of whom speedily administered to my wants. Round the fire, on benches, sat a number of the peasantry of Dartford and its neighbourhood, whose cheerful and ruddy countenance spoke of the still brave peasantry of England and the bold men of Kent. And as I gazed at these, the portly landlady, the prim and pretty barmaid, the blazing sea coal fire, the cheerful countenances of the peasantry, the feeling of regret for a moment stole across my breast, that I was leaving for a long period, perhaps forever, those comforts and those associations with which we meet not in any other land, but which are so essential to the true happiness and comfort of an Englishman. Scarcely were those feelings embodied into thought, before I was unpleasantly aroused by the reality of proceedings, by the rough voice of the coachman, telling me that if I was not quickly in my seat, he would leave me. Well, the coachmen are a race that for a long period have held despotic sway over the bodies of travelling Englishmen, but they are now almost of the things that were, a remnant of the light of other days. And even since that period of which I speak, the all but completion of the London and Dover Railroad has told the death knell of my gruff friend, the Dover Mail Coachman. Well, we are once more on the move, bracing against the pitiful peltings of the storm. I have often heard, and as often read, of the delightful and exhilarating effects of travelling by an English stagecoach and its four spirited horses. But I must bid to leave to declare my opinion that those gentry who are so ready to declare their eagerness on this point have never experienced that on which they have written and published, particularly on an evening like this, of which I am recording, for anything at all answering to pleasurable emotions had I none and in consequence hailed with great satisfaction the good old city of Rochester, its long bridge over the river Medway, the bride of old Father Thames, its old, old castle and revered cathedral. But above all things did I hail the goodly inn and its still more goodly parlour, on whose table stood a goodly round of beef, delicious roast potatoes and a ham, such as you see nowhere but on the shores of old England. This goodly supper we did full justice to, moistened with plentiful libations of good old Canterbury ale, and after another dose of my favourite beverage, of brandy and water, I was in a much better humour to meet the ills without, which certainly were rather increasing than diminishing. So I'll uh, just pause from reading here for a little bit because this is the very first opening section of the journals and I think you can sort of tell to me it almost reads something like the uh, Pickwick Papers um, with all these sort of references to uh, goodly rounds of beef and the peasantry of, of Dartford and things like that and obviously Dickens was a contemporary of William at that time I don't know if he was sort of influenced by his writing in any way 
I do know that um, William must have read Dickens because uh, later on in the journals he does sort of make a, a reference to him. So it's uh, interesting. It doesn't quite continue in this style all the way through the journals. I think, like anything, you start something very enthusiastically and uh, perhaps as time goes by, perhaps like this podcast indeed, <laughs> um, the enthusiasm begins to wane and um, you don't kind of keep it up as uh, eagerly as you did initially. So that may be the case here. But to be fair to William, he does write another um, approximately 240,000 words in his journal. So, so, but I think it's just like anything, like a good novel, isn't it? It's always said to try and start it off in as attractive and as interesting a way as possible. So maybe that explains why the sort of style and manner of the journal is quite florid in its language at this point. Another thing I should mention is um, when he's in Dartford and he refers to the bold and ruddy countenance of uh, the people of Dartford and then goes on to describe uh, bold men of Kent. He gets that slightly wrong because he should actually refer to them as Kentish men. It's a rather stupid demarcation between people, but I am a man of Kent um, because, just to explain it very briefly, if you're born on one side of uh, the Medway River, sort of closer to London, then you're a Kentish man. And if you're born the other side of the Medway River, further away from London, then you are a man of Kent. So William slightly errs there, but um, to be fair, most people don't even know the difference in Kent. So (laughs) why William should know any better than anyone else, I don't know. Obviously I do, because I'm a man of Kent. It's very enthusiastic at this point, and I think we do get a sense of, particularly when he's talking about the coachmen and how they are a thing of uh, times that were, as he says, that really does indicate really we're right at this point in history where modes of transport are changing the steam age is coming in, things like stage coaches and post coaches and things like that will in five years' time from this, as he says, be a, a thing of the past. So it is a, an interesting point in history. And I was kind of thinking of a modern comparison. And I suppose it is a bit like the internet age here, you know, there was a kind of time before and after, wasn't there? There was the time of phones with, uh, you know, hardwired lines. And <laughs> now we live in the mobile age and the internet age. And of course, that has transformed our society massively in a relatively short time. So, um, you know, it is sort of analogous to that, in a way, the dawn of the steam age and the dawn of the internet age, really. So uh, not a bad comparison. But it does sort of demonstrate there is a technological revolution and it is coming in at this moment and it is going to change everyone's lives dramatically. I also like that um, mention of the ruddy-faced countenance of the people of Dartford. If anyone has been to Dartford recently, I would say there certainly are quite a few people with um, ruddy countenances, uh, even to this day. But enough of offending the people of Dartford. They don't really deserve it. Or maybe they do. Anyway, I'll uh, carry on reading the next bit of William's Journey. Again on the way we whirled and reached the metropolitan city of Canterbury at two o'clock in the morning. I had often had a wish to visit Canterbury, to wander in and around its ancient cathedral, the same as I had sported round its sister of York, And now that I stood within the walls of the old city and close by its cathedral, it was but to say that I had been there, and to quit it in a moment, perhaps to return no more. The horses were changed, and the road now being more favourable than it had been in the earlier part of the evening, we proceeded at a very rapid rate to make up the time lost by the snow. 
and as the sun was rising, we had just reached the heights of Dover. At this moment, the morning gun was fired. And cold and weary as I was, I could not feel but highly gratified and animated by the scene that presented itself to my view. At our feet lay the town and castle of Dover, its banner, that's a, another word for flag, just throwing out its massy, that's a, again another word for large, uh, its massy folds to the morning breeze, and this was immediately answered by the shipping in the harbour. Then, simultaneously, shot into the air, the cross of St. George and Old England, the tricolour of France, the flags of Belgium, Holland and Prussia, the star-spangled banner of America, and the eagles of Austria and Prussia. After gazing at these, my eyes wandered to that narrow strait, so famed in deeds of war, so famed in historic recollections, the strait that had witnessed the landing of Julius Caesar, the achievements of Boscawen, Blake and Keppel, and a host of others, and in more modern times, the gigantic preparations of Napoleon for the invasion of England and the frustration of those schemes by Nelson. Just briefly, I think I need to explain who these naval gentlemen are that William mentions here. You've got Edward Boscawen, Augustus Keppel and Robert Blake. I think I'd just firstly say that Augustus Keppel and Boscawen are quite similar characters in a way. They were 18th century Navy commanders and heroes who both came from aristocratic backgrounds. Um, they were both from families who their fathers were Viscounts and things like this. But they were involved in many naval engagements throughout the 18th century. And in a way, they had sort of similar careers. It's quite interesting, really. You get this thing in that time of aristocratic young boys joining the Navy when they were very young. Keppel was only 10. Boscan was 12 when he joined the Navy. And as you can imagine, it was pretty tough times on those ships. I think you get us, if you've ever seen the film Master and Commander, uh, I think there's a couple of young characters on there who are obviously aristocratic lads who've been told, I suppose. I don't know whether they were told to join the Navy or had to join the Navy. Anyway, they had these very, very long, lengthy careers and both ended up as members of Parliament too. So obviously to William being much closer in time to them, they, they seem quite memorable characters. Probably their names were much more familiar to people around the time he's writing. I mean, to us now, they seem pretty uh, lost in the kind of dark ages of time, really. Unless you're a real naval historian, you probably won't know who you are. I mean, in general, when we think about naval heroes from Britain, who do we think of? Um, Nelson, obviously, Sir Francis Drake and maybe Sir Walter Raleigh as well, but maybe we think more about him as being the first person to bring a potato back home to the UK. But Keppel and Buscow, they're very similar characters. In a way, the time they were in the Navy was almost like its its height, and uh, we were in, involved in many, many battles, you know, with the French and the Dutch and the Spanish, and I kind of almost think that the uh, Royal Navy at that time was the equivalent of our English sort of football team. <laughs> you know, we would sort of take on any country going on, really. And, uh, you know, a, a bit later, we even had to go at the Chinese, which, which was seem crazy now. Come on, you blues. I suppose people followed because they were kind of heroic. Maybe you could say they were like the equivalent of, uh, you know, a, a sports star today or, or a, a, a pop star. It's a bit like me trying to remember the footballers that I was a fan of when I was growing up. Your Terry McDermott's and uh, your Sammy Lees from Liverpool and uh, Kevin Keegan, Kenny Dalglish. 
they're all Liverpool players, you notice. I mean, wh- why I, I was so keen on Liverpool when I was living in Kent near the other end of the country, I don't know. But there aren't many great football teams in Kent. And at that time, Liverpool used to win everything. So that probably explains it. I'd frown on that now if not being local. But anyway. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. Getting away from the football and, and getting back to the Royal Navy and Keppel and Buscown. So they're very similar characters. But they had these very distinguished Navy careers and both ended up in Parliament. Keppel, sort of interestingly, was quite involved in the American War of Independence and the Navy battles that surrounded that whole affair, which obviously ultimately wasn't a great success. And as well as being an admiral and being a politician in a way, I think um, there was sort of a lot of shenanigans going wrong and kind of a lot of politics. And he was very keen, apparently, to have the bottoms of the British ships sheathed with copper, which is a way of keeping off the barnacles and the other little critters that stick to the bottom of boats and ultimately make them go a little bit faster through the water and it has been argued that one of the reasons um, the Royal Navy wasn't very successful in the American War of Independence in some of the naval battles was because our ships weren't copper sheathed and I think the Americans were so yeah it sounds like there was a lot of political intrigue going on at that time that Keppel was involved in and ultimately that led to uh, him sort of getting into trouble with some of the more senior admirals and politicians around at that time but you could say he was right because we we lo- <laughs> we did uh, lose the 13 colonies as they say <laughs> and Boscawen now interestingly I don't know if he's necessarily the first one to have said this, but apparently when he was commanding his uh, seamen, he did say to them, this was about the French who we were nearly always fighting, don't shoot until you see the whites of their eyes. And so it may be that he was the first person that ever said that particular phrase. I think actually the most interesting character that William mentions there is actually Robert Blake, who was not known as an admiral because he was in charge of the Navy during the time of Cromwell's reign or government, uh, the parliamentarians when they were in charge and the king had been deposed. And so he was known as the general at sea. And he's often called the father of the Royal Navy because actually it was him who really invested a lot of resources and money into the Royal Navy and built many, many ships. And actually you could say that he's the foundations that he laid actually was what led to the success of the Navy later on in terms of people like Keppel and Boscawen winning lots of victories and things, and uh, and even a bit later Nelson. So Robert Blake, he's sort of not really known to us now. He was also a very successful naval commander, apparently more successful than Nelson, but he's not that well known. And of course that is because he was a parliamentarian. And when the royalists got back into power and Charles II was back on the throne, of course, there was a certain degree of writing people out of history or obscuring them from history and unfortunately, Robert Blake seems to be one of those people who, you know, got rubbed out of history because uh, he was on the wrong side or he was on the losing side. And as they say, history is often written by those on the winning side. So Robert Blake, although I think there is a statue of him in his hometown in Somerset, and despite the fact that he was actually a very successful naval commander, and as I say, he was known as the father of the Royal Navy, he's not that widely known to us now. Apparently as well, he was a... Uh, quite short in stature as well so uh so he's sort of a bit under height but you could say uh, a bit of an overachiever as well and uh being a bit of a short ass myself i don't know maybe that makes him a bit more colorful shorty stick together that's what i say but obviously to william these uh, names still had a lot of 
what's the word resonance i suppose so um i suppose it's good that he acknowledges them the success of the royal navy also resulted in building the empire and, and all that so these people i suppose were heroes to to people like william and that that time but of course they're to a degree lost to us now anyway back to the journal Instead of ships bristling with guns and decks crowded with men breathing defiance to their enemies, I saw the ships of those formerly rival nations now mingling together in the peaceful pursuance of commerce. The steam-packet ships of England and France lay aground in the harbour, and at a short distance, out at sea, playing about against the wind and the tide, whilst waiting was Her Majesty's pretty little mail-packet aerial to carry the bags to Ostend. Far in the distance I could perceive the hills of France, covered in snow, and others clothed in the brightest green, whilst in bold relief against the sky stood the proud towers of the city of Calais, the scene of many deeds of daring during the reigns of our earlier kings, and one of the brightest phases of England's history and the glory of women, when Queen Philippa, wife of Edward III, by her tears and entreaties, prevailed upon him to spare the lives of those citizens he had condemned to death." So I'm just going to interject briefly again here because I think this also needs a quick explanation. It's quite a famous story that William's referring to here. It's, um, I suppose, what's most commonly known as the Burgers of Calais, who are the people that uh, Philippa entreated her husband, Edward III, to, uh, to spare. There's a very famous sculpture by Rodin, of the burghers of Calais, um, where they're all in sort of chains. Um, the burghers were, if you like, the sort of councillors of the town, or it's not really quite a modern-day equivalent. They're sort of rich councillors, justices of the peace, I suppose, might be another kind of term you might sort of associate with them. Anyway, the burghers were obviously captured by Edward's army, and they were going to be executed, and, of course, Philippa pleads with Edward not to kill them and so they're they're released and this sculpture they're sort of all in these sort of chains and looking terribly distraught and there's not surprisingly a famous version of that um, sculpture in Calais itself but there's also a version of it or a copy of it obviously several versions are cast I think there's one in America as well and there's one very near the Houses of Parliament it's not in Parliament Square, but it's in, I think it's called Victoria Gardens. It's the it's the big park that's next to the Houses of Parliament, but not actually in um, Parliament Square itself. So, yeah. So that's the story that William's referring to there. So back to the journal again. But all at once, those bright prospects vanished from my sight, and all those wandering thoughts from my mind by finding myself in the narrow and crooked streets of Dover and the coach stopping a few minutes later at the ship hotel, where, having performed the necessary ablutions, we sat down to an excellent breakfast of coffee, muffins and ham, etc. After discussing these, that's uh, another antiquated term for eating them, basically, so they ate them, <laughs> they ate the muffins. After discussing these, we set out on a journey of discovery. Passing through the town and proceeding along the margin of the sea, we arrived at the foot of Shakespeare's cliff, where the stupendous work of driving a tunnel through that mountain was at that time in progress. The tunnel is double, and the whole of the work executed in the best manner. 
The further progress of the work since that period, and the immense undertaking of blasting, has placed the name of Cubit at the Southeastern Railway at a distance above all competitors. The immense labour and skill required in the sea embankment from the tunnel to the town will forever stand as one of the highest achievements of English capital and enterprise. So I think a little bit of explanation is required here just to help people know who William is referring to when he says Cubit and the South Eastern Railway. He's actually talking about Sir William Cubit, who was a well-known sort of civil engineer of that time, a bit like um, Isambard Kingdom Brunel or Robert Stevenson. And uh, he was involved in many sort of railway constructions around this time and the, and the early development of the railways. In fact, probably this particular stretch of line that William talks about, Folkestone to Dover, is probably one of the most famous railway lines that he was involved in building. Probably his other sort of famous things that he's known for, or would be noted for, perhaps not so great is the invention of the treadmill, which prisoners had to sort of use to get exercise when they were shackled to this round circular machine, a bit like a hamster's wheel, I think, and just had to keep walking and turning it round to uh, basically do another form of hard labour. So uh, that was one of his inventions, which um, you could say was a bit inhumane. But uh, the other, I suppose, major project he was well known for was he was uh, heavily involved in the erection of the Crystal Palace, which was a, a massive building that um, was erected to almost hold like the world's first kind of trade fair in 1851. And it was built in Hyde Park. It was actually designed by the gardener, Joseph Paxton. But um, William Cubitt was kind of the engineer responsible for um, a lot of the work and it being built so um, that's why he was knighted for his uh, involvement in that and in fact when um, they were trying to gather the designs for the Crystal Palace he was on the committee board along with Robert Stevenson and Isambard Kingdom Brunel for choosing the winning design. It's interesting that I didn't realise doing research into this how controversial the Crystal Palace at the time was. It was an idea, I think, that Prince Albert had had. It was very much his baby and he wanted it to uh, not only display all the great achievements of British industry and culture, but also invite things from around the world. But it was actually cost a lot of money and... Um, it reminded me of the controversy that was around the Millennium Dome also in London at the turn of the century in uh, 2000. That makes sense, doesn't it? The year 2000. Because um, that was very controversial as well and everybody said what a big waste of money it was. And um, of course it's subsequently become the O2 Arena and, and is actually quite liked by people now. And it seems in a way the Crystal Palace was very much a similar thing. It only stood in Hyde Park for about six months and then it was dismantled and then re-erected in, of course, Crystal Palace in southeast London. And it was used for many exhibitions after this, but it did sort of gradually decline. And then in 1936, there was a massive fire and uh, it was just completely destroyed by this huge fire, which apparently could be seen from a distance of eight counties away. So it must have been a pretty big blaze, but it was a pretty enormous building made essentially from cast iron and glass. And the cleverness behind Paxton's design was that he used the biggest panes of glass that were available at that time. And it was kind of in a way, because the whole design was based around the size of these panes of glasses that could be made, um, it became very modular. So they were able to build a very extensive and effective building for the purpose. 
relatively cheaply and relatively quickly. And so um, that was another reason that apparently Joseph Paxton was also knighted. Sorry, I've gone on a bit too much about the Crystal Palace than I meant to. Getting back to the railway that William's talking about, it was a, a big undertaking for William Cubitt and the railway involved because it was going through the chalk cliffs that are right on the coast there at Dover. And, of course, at that time, all they really had was explosives to blast holes through the chalk cliffs and, you know, horses and carts and manual labour to get rid of the, the rubble. So it must have been a real undertaking, and it did take a long time to build it. And I suppose William, as a, an engineer himself, could really appreciate all the work that was involved in it. And, you know, he says it will be remembered for all time. The sad thing is that those... Tunnels are still there, so they have certainly lasted, but people certainly don't remember William Cubitt, and probably the only time they give those tunnels a second thought is when they lose their mobile signal as they're going through the tunnel, much to their annoyance, whilst they're trying to speak to someone in the office. Um, so, <laughs> or, I was just phoning home, and I can't, oh dear, I'm dropping out <laughs> as they go through the tunnel. Little do they know the amount of effort and work that went into those tunnels that they're going through as they travel along the railway line there. It is actually a very vulnerable railway line, and I do remember not that long ago, because uh, it's so close to the sea, there was a big storm and a lot of it was washed away, and they had to rebuild it. And this time, um, of course, with the aid of uh, modern engineering machinery like hydraulic bulldozers and cranes and things like that, they, they I think they did it in about a year, but um, it still took a long time to rebuild it and shore it all up again before the trains could use it again. Anyway, that's the explanation there about William Cubitt sorry but I think it sort of needed to be said sort of who William Cubitt was otherwise it, it just would, wouldn't really mean very much on returning to the town we found the steamer nearly ready for putting to sea and accordingly hastened on board, having been pretty well fleeced by the people of Dover, in the shape of carriage of luggage, pier dues, use of a ladder for going on board, some of the most preposterous and exorbitant charges. Sorry, I just wanted to very quickly break in here, because I do like this bit, because it reminds me a little bit of when uh, my girlfriend and I, now my wife, were travelling in India, and doing our own sort of grand tour, I suppose, and you'd go into a temple and you you know you'd have to take your shoes off so you'd have to pay someone to take off your shoes and, and and then you'd have to pay someone to look after your shoes and then someone to help you put your shoes back on and uh, you'd go in and they'd ask you to light a candle and then you'd have to pay someone to get the candle and then you'd have to pay someone for the match to light the candle and uh <laughs> and then <laughs> and then you'd have to pay someone for putting the candle out and uh, it's just nice to hear that the uh, ancient tradition of trying to fleece unsuspecting travellers for money for the silliest things that you possibly can you know, has, a, has a, a long history and it was being carried out by the people of Dover in uh, 1840, much to William's annoyance for being charged for the use of a ladder to get onto the, uh, to get onto the paddle steamer. Oh, you want the ladder? Oh, yeah. Oh, ladder. Ladder's extra, mate. Um, <laughs> oh, dear. Picking up the bag, yeah, that's uh, that's what thirty shillings. <laughs> Putting the bag down, that's uh, another thirty shillings. Ladder? Oh yeah, you, you want a ladder? Yeah, ladder's extra. <laughs> Sorry, I said this is going to be brief, but anyway, back back to the journal. 
At one o'clock we bade adieu to the shores of old England in the Britannia steamship belonging to the General Navigation Company, and had scarcely left the pier when the demon of seasickness made his appearance on board. We had two carriages upon deck. The sea was rough, the ship small, and she rolled tremendously. There were a great deal of ladies on board, and they were laid about the cabin floor in all directions and as helpless as newborn infants. I too, for though I had suffered from it before, and that severely in voyaging several times the German Ocean, and even though I had been out in much rougher weather, I never felt such a total prostration of strength, such a longing even to die than to suffer the intense misery as I did on that occasion, so that no words can express it. Since then, I have again crossed the German Ocean, I have traversed 6,000 miles of the Great Atlantic, the rolling Bay of Biscay, and the Gulf of Mexico with its formidable northerns so dreaded by seamen, I have done all this, and not suffered one hundredth part of what I did on that day, so that even now I think of it with fear and loathing. But happily it was doomed to be of a short duration, for at quarter past four we were safely riding in still water alongside the pier of Boulogne, upon which stood some queer-looking customers dressed in great grey coats, blue jackets and red trousers, their heads surmounted by comical-looking caps and short cutlasses by their side. These gents were duans, or custom-house officers, and having civilly demanded our passports, exchanged a wish to make themselves acquainted with the contents of our trunks and portmanteaus, with which request we were obliged to comply to satisfy them we had nothing liable to duty. So at this point, I'm going to end this first episode of the podcast as it seems a good point to end just as William is about to take his first steps on French soil. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the podcast so far. Please tune in again. It does take me a little time to put them together because I have to prepare the extracts that I'm going to read and carry out a bit more research as I'm doing it. And also there are times when the journals become a little bit repetitive William visits an awful lot of churches and talks about their interiors and things like that. And so at times there are elements I think can be omitted. It's not actually that much, but occasionally judiciously I will uh, move on to the next more significant bit of the journey. Anyway, thank you for listening. I hope you will tune into the next podcast and enjoy William's journey with me around Europe and around the world. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 